There are two phrases in this fourth chapter that become the focus of what I want to say this morning. Actually, there is one phrase, and it is repeated. It is this, that we do not lose heart, that we do not faint, is the King James. The most common malady among Christians is fainting. Now, I'm not talking about uh, physical fainting. I'm talking about spiritual fainting, losing heart, becoming discouraged, or giving up. Have you ever been to a soapbox derby? I always thought I'd like to uh, drive, I guess that's what you'd call it, one of those soapbox cars. And so I tried to make me one to no success when I was a kid. One thing about a soapbox, a, a derby car, is that you've always got to give it a little shove. It requires that, a little nudge. And you get it up on a little hill and you give it a shove and it'll go down that hill, you know, as far as, as long as it's got a little slant, not too long, it's not too long until it just runs out of uh, speed. And so you got to take it back to another hill and give it another shove. And the tragedy is there are far too many Christians just like that. You're always having to give them a little nudge, a little shove. They kind of go from one spiritual high to the next. They kind of make it from one uh, revival to the next, from one Bible conference to the next. You have to keep giving them a little nudge. The Bible has a lot to say about losing heart. As a matter of fact, the Apostle Paul deals with this malady that is peculiar not just to the Corinthian church, in every one of his epistles. And so in Ephesians 3.13, he says, Do not lose heart. And in Galatians 6.9, he said, Do not lose heart in doing good. And in 1 Thessalonians 3.13, he says, Let us not grow weary in doing well. If you're not careful, you'll lose heart. I imagine this morning that I'm speaking to some people who have lost heart. If not here in this auditorium, at least on television, you've gotten discouraged and you're thinking about quitting. When I was a kid growing up, my mother had this green thumb. And so all over our yard, we had these beautiful flowers. On the window outside the house, by my, well, by my window on the wall of the house there, on the outside, there was this beautiful plant. It had these blue funnel-shaped blooms, but you had to get up early to see them. It was called a morning glory. And it didn't bloom long. As a matter of fact, when the sun came up, that blossom just kind of turned in and disappeared, and it come back the next morning. I may be speaking this morning to some morning glories, and you've lost the bloom of your faith in the heat of the day. Oh, you're not thinking about renouncing your faith. You're just thinking about retiring and letting somebody else do it. And so to you, I want to speak this morning because I speak to myself more than to you. Oh, the tendency to lose heart, to faint. I want to give us the secret of, of durability. I want to talk about the secret of sticking with it. I want to talk about how not to lose heart. I want to say four things about it. The first is this. There must be the consecration. There must be consecration to the servant life. 
Now in verse 5, the apostles said, We preach not ourselves. We're not in this for ourselves. We're not here for selfish reasons or because of some selfish motivation. We do not, we're not here for the acceptance of it or to gain approval. We preach not ourselves but Jesus Christ as Lord. And he introduces into this epistle the theme, the new idea of the Lordship of Jesus Christ. We preach not ourselves, but Jesus Christ the Lord, and ourselves, your servants, for His sake. And when you look at that a little while, it all of a sudden dawns on you that what He said is not what you expected Him to say. Now what you would expect him to say is, we preach Jesus the Lord, our, his servants for your sake. We are his servants for your sake. Now that makes a lot of sense. I mean, that makes a world of sense. But that's not what he said. He said, we preach Jesus as Lord and ourselves, your servants for his sake. For if Jesus Christ is the Lord of your life, there will inevitably be in your life a servant, to, a service to His people. I want you to know this morning that you're just as much a bondservant to God's people as you are a bondservant to God. And there are two illustrations of that in the Bible. One of them takes place in the Old Testament. It's found in Exodus the 32nd and 33rd chapters. And God's anger is just burning because uh, God's people are obstinate and rebellious. And God knows that Moses feels that same burden for God's people. And so God comes to Moses one day and tells him, in essence, my anger is burning against my people and I'm thinking about starting all over with you and you'll be the father of the nation of these people. Now that sounds pretty good to a man, perhaps. What if God came to you this morning and said, I'm going to, you're going to be the father of the nation. I'm just going to begin all over with you and you're going to be my leader of my people. But Moses didn't respond to that selfishly. You know what he did? He said to God, don't let your anger burn toward these people. If they can't go in, I don't want to go in. If you can't bless them, don't bless me. I pray, save these people, but if not, oh God, blot me out of your book. It was the servant mind. The second illustration of that takes place in the New Testament. As a matter of fact, it's my favorite experience in the ministry of Jesus. It's found in the 13th chapter of the book of John. And I want you to know it is the most incredible thing, I believe, that Jesus did in the three years of His public ministry. And there they were in that upper room and he takes this towel and puts it around him and he bows down in the presence of his disciples and he becomes a servant to them. He washes their feet. It's the lowliest menial task of a servant. And he gets back up and he says, Do you know what I've done for you? I've shown you what I want you to be like. And if I, your Lord and Master, can become a servant, then you must become a servant. For the Son of Man, even the Son of Man, did not come to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give His life a ransom for many. Now that's not easy to do, I want to confess. Francis Schaeffer was right when he says, man's idea, man's mentality is to boss, is to control. And so in his book, No Little People, he says, 
Imagine a young guy taking a new job in a firm. I mean, he's got the, low, the lowest job. I mean, he's the low man on the totem pole. He gets all the dirty jobs. Everybody bosses him around. And one day he comes into the boss's office and he looks around carefully to be sure that nobody else is around or sees him. He sits down in the boss's chair, puts his feet up on the desk and leans back and says, One of these days I'm going to say, run, and they'll run. And Francis Schaeffer said, that's man. Then he says, with tears, man doesn't automatically abandon that mentality when he becomes a Christian. For there is a seed in all of us to want to control, to want to boss, to want to have the word of power for our fellows. But, says Francis Schaeffer, that's not the way the Bible says for us to live. And he reminds us that one day Jesus got all of his disciples together and he said, you understand that in the Pharisees there is this mentality to lord it over everybody. But it's not so with you, he said. For if you're going to be first, you must be last. If you're going to be master, you must be servant of all. And then he told about himself, he said, why even the Son of Man came to minister. Now, where does that mentality come from? Well, the text says it comes from two sources. Where is its motivation? It's motivated by a command from God. Now, he says in verse 1, we have this ministry. The Greek construction makes that say, we have received this ministry. And it's the idea of the Lord laying His hand upon you. The Lord, when He saved you, now hear me, the Lord, when He saved you, laid His hand upon you and He gave you a ministry. And that ministry is not a ministry of authority. It's a ministry of servanthood. And it comes not just as a command from God, but it comes with the compassions of God. And He said, we have received mercy. Now this mercy is what enables us to carry out the ministry. Mercy is pity in action, and God doesn't give the ministry without the mercy. Why do you think uh, Emmy Dobbins spends his Monday nights with boys, with Boy Scouts, you know, I mean for 50 years? Why do you think he does that? Do you think he does that for himself? Or why does he go out on all these camp outs, you know, week after week after week? And why does he go down to Garden Villa when nobody else will do it? Every Monday. You know, he's still doing that. And his wife is over there in the hospital and can't, can't help him any longer. He does it by himself. You know why he does that? He has this mercy that God has given him. And what would make a, what would make a Bill Wallace stay in China when the communists begin to move in and, and they tell him, you don't get out, you're going to lose your life. And he stays there. Somebody asked him why he stayed. He said, the love of Christ constrains me. And I heard Dr. Campbell tell, uh, tell, tell about the time that the flu epidemic hit uh, uh, Bowie's Creek Co College, Campbell College. Uh, Charles Howard tell about the, the time that uh, the flu epidemic hit Campbell College in Bowie's Creek. And he said this woman, this godly woman who was a teacher in the university there, just, just gave herself to these students, carried bedpans and waited on them. All of them had the flu. She lived in the dorms and ministered to them subjected herself to the disease itself. And somebody said to her one day, I wouldn't do that for a million dollars. And she said, neither would I. And somebody asked her, why are you doing it then? And she said, well, the love of Christ constrains me. 
Now, where do we, how do we keep from losing heart? How do we keep this enthusiasm, this zeal for serving God week after week after week? It comes when we understand that we are committing ourselves to the servant life. It's a part of Christianity. Secondly, there must be the communication of the Savior's life. He said, we preach not ourselves, but Jesus. Now, if you're not careful as a Christian, you'll try to communicate your life. It's what I have to resist all the time, that temptation. It's inherent in Christian ministry and service to want to, commit, to communicate your life. There are some people, I believe, who are, who are serving God in Christian service who are more interested that people be conformed to their image than to Christ's image. I pastored a church out in West Texas that had this special class in the church. They didn't even meet in the church. They met in a theater downtown. They had this huge class of people, men and women, young folks, older folks, young people. They all went down to this theater. They called it Sunday school. And they had this teacher. He was a great teacher. And he'd just get up, you know, and kind of preach to them, taught, you know, taught them in this uh, special class. And all these people, hundreds of them, were just miniatures of this man, just, you know, running around in, in, the, in the town. And he was the most quoted man in that little town. Now, they didn't quote Jesus a lot, but they quoted him a lot. And, and, you know, and the pastors before would go in and try to, you know, let's, let's, let's see if we can't get some new classes, smaller groups out of that. And he'd just threaten the preacher, you know, I'll have your job if you mess around with my little class, my big class. They were just miniatures of this man. And I thought about the disciples on, their road, on the road to Emmaus and they were walking along talking about this Christ who had been crucified on, whose hopes, on, on whom they had pinned all of their hopes and they didn't even recognize Jesus in their, in their midst and, and they were telling Him this Christ was crucified but some, of, some people have said that He was raised from the dead and some of our friends went back and saw that it was like they said it was but Him they saw not. And I thought of all the people who went to that special class in that theater. They saw that man, but Jesus they saw not. Now what are we here? What are we about? Why are we here? Verse 11 describes the purpose of our being as a Christian. He said, in order that the life of Jesus might be manifested in our mortal flesh. That's the key. You know what it means to manifest? You know what that Greek word means? It means to make visible. Now Jesus came to make the invisible God visible. You know why He saved you and left you here? In order to make the invisible Christ visible. And so Jesus just comes and indwells us because He wants a body through whom He can be visible to the world. He just wants a channel through whom He can reveal Himself. Now, now that's the key. No wonder we get so tired serving God because mo for most of us, Christian, the Christian life is just like kind of being a little errand boy for God and worse than that, for the church. You know, that's not what it's about. To be a Christian is to present your life to God so that He can manifest Himself through it. Now, if you want to lose weight, don't ever go to these big malls in the city because 
on every corner of the mall just lurking in, in on every corner these Russell Stover candy shops. I mean, they're everywhere. And, and, and these big old chocolate chip cookie factories. I mean, they're, they're, they're on they're, they're every other store in those malls are candy or cookie stores. You ever notice that? Now, um, I try to resist those things. I really do. But as I go by them, it's kind of a joke in our family. If they're over here on our left, you know, we, as we walk by, I always say, eyes right. You know, we just kind of ignore them. But you can't ignore them. Because they've got these big display cases there. And inside those display cases are the most magnificent candies and cookies you've ever seen. Dark, rich chocolate, creamy caramel, rich nougat centers. Makes you hungry, doesn't it? Big old chocolate chip cookies, that big around, and you break them open, and that chocolate chips, those chips in there, and just gooey. You know how that. You know how that looks. And they just line there in those cases. And, and, and I'm thinking as I go by, this is my rationale. Well, I won't get by here for another few weeks. I might as well, you know, my diet can start tomorrow. It won't hurt me to eat a pound of that Russell Stover candy. And I always resist. I always yield to it. Never can resist it. Well, let me show you something, folks. This is the gospel truth. You know what a Christian is? He's a display case where Jesus looks so good to a hungry man that he cannot resist him. All God is looking for is just some display cases where he can just put his son on display and all these hungry folks that come by just look in that display and say, that's what I need, that's what I want to satisfy me. That's all there is to it. It's not a matter of, you know, beating yourself to death, running to and fro, uh, uh, you know, the church. It's a matter of just being a, a display case for Christ. And there's some folks that I can get around in my life, you know, Jesus just touches my life when I'm around them. You ever notice that? I'm around some folks and athletics touch my life because they're a vital part of athletics. I'm around some folks and music touches my life because music is a vital part of them. I'm around some folks and sorrow touches my life because sorrow is a vital part of them. I'm around some folks and Jesus touches my life when I'm around them because Jesus is a vital part of them. That's what he's talking about, communication of the Savior's life. Number three, there must be the crucifixion of the self-life. Now, I want you to hang in here because we're going to get down to the nitty-gritty. Would you look at that verse now? You've got it lying on your lap, beginning at verse 8. Chapter 4, we are afflicted in every way, but we're not crushed. We're knocked down, but we're not knocked out, he said. We're perplexed, but not despairing. We're persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus. That the life of Jesus might also be manifested in our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus also might be manifested in our mortal flesh. Now that's the, that's the law of spiritual harvest right there. I am constantly dying in order that Jesus might live in you. There is death working in me, he's saying, in order that life might work in you. 
Now, in another place, Paul says this a little more graphically. I like the way he says it over there in Galatians when he says, we bear, I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. And whenever I read that, I think of old Thomas, doubting Thomas, and he said, I'll not believe until I see the marks of the cross. Let me tell you something. There's an unbelieving world out there that will not believe until they see the marks of the cross in the person who claims to have died with Jesus to sin and who professes to live the resurrection life. But alas, there are not very many people like Paul who carry about in their body the marks of the cross, that is, death to sin and life unto God. What do we mean when we talk about the marks of the cross? Well, it's just our marks of identification with Jesus Christ. Death to our plans and purposes. Death to our claim to our own life so that He might have His way with us and with ours. The marks of the cross mean that I die to self. Now do you say, does that mean you know, denying things? Well, although it may refer to denial of specific matters, really it, it, it has to do with not so much with a giving up this particular thing and that particular thing. It, it has to do with giving up the claim to your own life now, Peter didn't have any problem giving up things. I mean, the very first day he gave up boats and nets. But it took him three years to give up self. And you're a witness to that world out there that says, that is asking, where are the marks of the cross? Where's the evidence that you have gone all the way to Calvary with Jesus Christ and have died to self, your own plans and purposes? your own claim to the right that you have to your life. And I'm convinced that that unbelieving world is not going to believe until it sees some evidence of some self-death, de self death to the self-life. Now the Christian life, as I understand it, is both a crisis and a process. It is a crisis in the sense that I come to the place where I'm willing to repent of my sin and give my heart and life to Jesus Christ in the encounter of salvation. It is a process in the sense that day by day I bring my life and I place it on the altar for God. And that self-denial comes. Oh, wouldn't it be wonderful to live a victorious ever victorious, ever uh, joyous Christian life? Well, what is the hindrance to that? It is self. There is death to the self-life. One last thing, perhaps the most important idea of all. There must be concentration on the secret life. He said, our outward man perishes. Let me tell you what, being a Christian has its, takes its toll. The fellow that tells you that it's easy to be a Christian, he doesn't, he's never been one. It's not easy. And the man who wrote this epistle died early, and he died as a martyr. It takes its toll on us to be a Christian. 
But he said, the inward man is renewed every day. There is this inner renewal every day. And then he gives us the clue to this inner renewal. He said, while we look... Now that word in the Greek is a, is a word that means a, a, a contemplation, a, a meditation upon. It is giving a, a constant gaze upon while we look not at the things which are seen, but the things which are unseen. And it's a word that, that has reference to some mark that you follow. I remember as a young man, my dad would make me uh, go out and plow, you know. And uh, when you're making furrows, we called it listening. When you're making furrows to plant the, the, the crop in the spring, you, you know, you're working on uh, a barren, you know, flat surface. And we had this kind of a, a little deal that um, was out on the edge of the, of the, of the uh, equipment, the, the lister, and it made a mark as we went along. When you turned around and came back, then you, you followed that mark. You had to keep your eyes on it, or you'd, you know, the furrows would look kind of like that, you know, or be kind of like that. You had to keep your eye on that mark. What is the mark to which you've set your gaze as a Christian? Did you watch that interview in the Olympics? That guy named Henry Marsh, who was training for the steeplechase, that grueling race, perhaps the most taxing of all of the races, and it showed him one day leaving his house there in, Arizona, in Utah to go out and train in the wintertime. The snow is coming straight down. And this is what he said. He said, sometimes all you have before you is your dream. What is the mark to which you've set your, 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 your gaze? If your mark as a Christian is just kind of you know, doing a duty because the church has asked you to do it, you'll not do it long. If your goal is, is just serving, you know, because the, the pastor wants you to do it or the Sunday school director or whatever, you're going to get pretty tired pretty quickly. But if your mark is the prize of the upward call of Christ Jesus and you keep your eyes on that mark, there is a renewing of strength every day. Sometime I want to be honest with you, I get tired myself and discouraged and defeated. But every time you get discouraged, you just remember it's because you've taken your eyes off the mark and you've placed them on the problem. If you're losing heart, it's because you're not looking in the right place. And he said, we look not at the things which are seen, but the things which are unseen. And the psalmist said, unto thee that dwellest in the heavens, I lift up my eyes. Behold, as a servant looks to the hands of his master, and the maiden looks to the hands of her mistress, O Lord, I wait upon you. I will lift up mine eyes unto the hills. From whence cometh my help? My help cometh from the Lord. Have you ever wondered how Jesus never lost heart? I mean, he never got discouraged. And he faced this opposition and this rejection and he faced this persecution and all these clowns that were trying to trap him and he never lost heart and he never fainted. You know how he did it? 
You notice sometimes, count them, how many references there are in the Scripture to the fact that Jesus lifted up His eyes into heaven and He saw this God there and this throne and He got and it gave him new strength. And it was said of Moses that he endured seeing him who is invisible. He endured even though occasionally he doubted his own abilities. And he endured this interminable hassle that came to him all through the wilderness wanderings. And he endured even in his own testings. And how did he do it? Because he saw him who is invisible. And that strength that came to Moses, I submit, did not arise from or depend upon his peers. Let us be honest with, it, with, with ourselves. You know, the people around us oftentimes don't induce faith in us, really. And this strength that he found was not because of temporal circumstances, because of what went on around him. Not that at all. He found this strength to endure because he saw him who is invisible. What is your inner life like? What is your secret life like? Have you come today from some tryst with God? This week I had to do a little re-evaluation of my own heart and life. We're facing some new responsibilities as the fall begins and I knew new college students would be coming. And we have a tremendous challenge before us in the plans that we want to present for our church. And we've been through a long journey trying to find staff members, and I'll confess to you, I've gotten weary. And so I wanted to find out what's going on. What's going on with me? And in my quiet time this week, God let it, made it pretty clear. The only reason I've grown weary was not because of the challenge or the circumstances around me or the problems or giving up a kid to Baylor University, the real problem for me was that I had neglected my secret life. God dies in our living not by denial, but by inattention. You want to know how not to lose heart, you need to concentrate on the secret life. Consecrate yourself to the servant life. Be sure you're communicating the Savior's life. Be willing to crucify the self-life and concentrate on the secret life. Let's pray together. Father, there's so many of us who need to hear what is being said, not by a pastor, but by the Holy Spirit. Lord, bring us to an awareness of where we have need and lack today. And if we need to consecrate ourselves to the servant life, 
Help us to take the towel and the basin. If we've not been communicating the Savior's life, help us to know there's nothing any more exhausting than trying to communicate the self. And if we need to crucify the deeds of the flesh, God, help us to begin that process. And if we need some concentration today upon the secret life, expose that need to us, dear Lord, because I pray in Jesus' name. Now there are invitations that we have in our church, and these invitations are just like this. We invite you to come first to give your heart and life to Jesus, to begin to follow Christ. doesn't mean that you're going to promise from now on to be all of these kinds of things, but just to give your heart and life to Jesus Christ, to the Savior who died at Calvary for your sin. Have you ever trusted Christ as your personal Savior? Have you ever trusted Him to be your Savior? The crisis moment is this moment where you say yes or no to the grace and appeal of God. Don't say no. The second invitation this morning is for those of us who have lost heart. For various reasons. For various causes. Or perhaps you're assuming some responsibility today and beginning of a new church year that's going to demand more than you feel you have and you want to finish what you start. Is there a need this morning of rededication of life, dealing with these areas that we talked about? Or maybe you need to come and join this fellowship. You're here now. You're in Durant. This is your home. You want to put your life here. Our choir will sing an invitation that God offers from His Word to you. Would you say yes to Him? While we stand, we sing.